I looked around for the speaker and he wasn't he, gone. <laughs> hey, uh, it's a, it, is, it is a real pleasure. I, I say that usually, but um, yeah, I really mean it. I, um, <laughs> uh, Ken Fong is a uh, pastor of Evergreen Baptist Church in the LA area and uh, was a featured speaker at uh, Urbana. Many of you enjoyed uh, Ken's ministry when you went to the last Urbana gathering. Um, he uh, had a reputation that preceded him, uh, meeting him this morning and uh, hearing his, uh, his heart, um, just talking about his vision for the kingdom of God, uh, his unusual clarity, uh, his creativity. I, I, just, uh, I just like this man, and I am um, so grateful that he uh, found it in his schedule to be with us. So I want to say a prayer for Ken, and uh, I want you to get done. When I get done with the prayer, and we give him a good Westmont welcome. But Father, thank you for this, uh, this choice servant of yours. Uh, thank you for the way you made him, for all that he is and is called to do. Thank you for the words you've given him for us this morning. Lord, I pray he'll speak with joy and with great clarity in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's welcome Ken Fong. Thank you very much. Wow, does that mean uh, Westmont may give my daughter a scholarship? <laughs> yeah, right. She's only two and a half. So uh, I spoke with the uh, previous president a couple of years ago, and I said, how much would it cost for my daughter to come here in about 19 years? Right? So he's like, well, let's see, it's about, uh, about $125,000 a year. I said, well, she's going to trade tech in Los Angeles. She's going to be a blue-collar worker. Nothing wrong with that. Well, God bless you, everybody. Thank you for having me here. Oh, Cal, that's where I went. Good sweatshirt. <laughs> How many, of you, how many of you have ever had second thoughts about being a Christian? Right, come on, honestly. Second thoughts about being a Christian, especially if you were raised by Christian parents, okay? Especially if your parents are a pastor or a missionary, right? You're like, hey, man, you picked this. I didn't pick this. Right, this it's very natural and normal for people who are Christians to have doubts, to ask questions, and uh, especially when you're in college, young adults, that's the time when you're questioning a lot of things that were just handed to you. So don't be dismayed. But I want to zero in on a particularly more narrow niche of people who question whether or not they should continue being Christians. And these are people who are only asking this question because their being Christians has made life too hard for them. It has nothing to do with comparing other faiths, has nothing to do with just wanting to walk away from religion in general. It's that their claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ has brought on them untold suffering, hardship, persecution, even death. Now, I would think that most of us, if not all of us in this room, that is something bizarre. We have not ever really had to face that kind of dilemma about whether or not our faith in Jesus Christ is going to continue because it's a life or death matter. I was thinking about this myself, and I was thinking, where in my own life, my own walk with Christ, have I ever had come face-to-face -face with some issue in life that was purely hard simply because I was a Christian? 
And my life, as I reflected upon it, has been really easy, really good. I mean, just, just to show you how easy and good it is, this is the best example I can come up with, with uh, a time in my life where being a Christian made me have second thoughts because it made my life hard. Now, in order to appreciate this, this is, I'm going to talk about when I was dating as a seminary student. Okay? So in order to appreciate why that was hard, you have to understand how dating was for me as a high school and a college student. See, when I was in high school and college, I had no clue, no intention, no desire to be a pastor. And I had like the ultimate first line in asking some girl out. And that was to say I was pre-med. Anyone pre-med here? <laughs> that is like the most attractive. You could be the dorkiest guy. Okay? And you just say, hey, I'm pre-med. Okay? And that, that's like saying you're already a doctor, finished with med school, done all your residency. Right? You know, six for your game. I mean, that just gives you a lure. And especially when you're a Chinese-American male and you're going to meet Chinese-American girls' parents. That, I mean, you could, you could be hideous. You could have a third eye in the middle of your forehead, right? And, and you could just say, but I'm pre-med. And they're like, oh, come have some tea, you know? Well, this, is, this is wonderful that you, uh, you, know, you want to take our daughter out. So that was my whole experience in high school and college, having never taken the MCATs yet, you know? I'm not really a doctor, I just play one in my mind, right? It, it's like, it was this totally cool experience. And then God got a hold of me after I graduated from college and showed me that he had a different idea for me, which was, which was great, okay? And out of obedience, I started pursuing the pastorate. And so now, yeah, here I am, second-year seminary student, moved down to Los Angeles, taking out women from the church that I was serving at. Totally different experience, okay? You meet their parents and say, hi, uh, yeah, I'm uh, studying to be a pastor. And the way they reacted to that is like I said, I'm studying to be a leper. <laughs> like, oh, unclean. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, oh, I, I'll never forget this one experience I had with this very attractive woman in our church. Uh, we were, I had just picked her up, first date, we're in the car, we haven't even left the curb, and she turns to me and she says, you know, you should know something that my parents just had a very serious this talk with me before you showed up here, and they're very worried that you're studying to be a pastor. Okay? And uh, I said, well, okay, let, let me just try to put your mind at ease for the rest of the evening. I have no plans to propose to you tonight. <laughs> and that's not my style. I don't, I don't usually ask people to marry me on the first date. I don't care how attractive you are. You know, there, there's just, you know, certain preliminaries that I have to work through. But I said, you know what's really frustrating to me? It's that your parents, and maybe you, are judging me right now in a way that seems bizarre. I said, because when I was going out in high school and college, yeah, I was pre-med and even a Christian, but, but as far as the maturity of my character, in terms of my, my maturity as a human being and my ability to, to make commitments and to nurture a relationship with a woman, I am far superior being to who I was back when I was in high school and college. And yet I'm getting the reverse reaction. It's just like, you know. And, and I said, that's so frustrating to me. And I said, what's even more frustrating is your parents are Christians. Now that may be different to some of you who aren't uh, of Asian extraction, but even, even Christian Asian parents many times don't want their kids marrying into professions that are full-time vocationally serving Christ. It's like, let somebody else's kids do that. You know, we want ours to have financial security. And there's a whole cultural history to that, okay? Won't get into that. 
But I'll tell you, it was very, very frustrating for me having had a different experience in high school and college to all of a sudden be, be rejected just right out the gate simply because, not just because I was a Christian, but how I was choosing to live out my faith in Christ. Okay? And there were moments, not long ones, but there were moments when I questioned, I said, you know, God, I can just be a Christian and be something else, be a CPA or something like that, be an architect. Why do I have to have this other part that makes me, you know, unattractive automatically when I feel like, you know, I have so much more to offer? Now, just to let you know how an optimist thinks, I figured out a way to make that a positive thing. Okay, so, so I thought, man, I'm getting all depressed here. Hey, let's just turn this thing around. It's like, you know, it's great because now that I'm a seminary student and it's very clear that I'm going to be a pastor, it just weeds out all these unnecessary dates. Right? <laughs> well, look at all the money I'm going to save. Right? I mean, just, especially as a seminary student, I don't have money just passing this stuff around. You know, it's like, this is great. So now there's not this long line of candidates. Okay? <laughs> it's a very short list. I get right down to it. And I found a woman who married me. So that's good. See, it works out. Now, see what I'm saying? Isn't that ridiculous? That's like the hardest episode in my life that was directly a result of my being a Christian. Well, whether you realize it or not, we have millions, up to 200 million brothers and sisters in Christ for whom life is extremely hard because simply they choose to say they're followers of Jesus Christ. Some of them were part of cultures and countries where it was okay to be Christians at first, and then there was a change in culture and attitude and government, and now it's, it's a punishable offense. Others, and the, the second group just baffles me, they came to Christ leaving another religion knowing that by leaving that religion, it is a capital offense. We have it so easy. We, 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 take, we are so glib in just claiming, oh, you know, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ. In some countries and in some atmospheres, just to say that, just to be in, in some place like this, is you are literally risking your life. I don't know if you realize it, but um, October was the month where we were supposed to pray for the persecuted church around the world. Most of us aren't even aware that there are Christians who are persecuted every single day simply because they say they're followers of Jesus Christ. One of the things we're going to do at the end of my message today is we're going to gather in small groups and we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And I have to confess to you that most of the time I don't feel the pain of the parts of the body that are suffering right now every day simply because they confess what I confess. So we're going to do that. But before we do that, I want us to look into the scriptures to understand what's going on here. Why would someone choose to be a Christian when they know that making that choice is actually going to make their life horrible? Most of us came to Christ saying, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And, the, you know, the implied part is, and it's a great plan, right? It's going to be great. You're going to have all sorts of success and fun and comfort. And it's like, are we reading a different Bible? Let's take a look at what the Apostle Paul understood about his own calling and the place of suffering in his own life. If you do open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 9, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul understood that suffering as an apostle came, came automatically with following the suffering servant of God. Suffering, as you're turning to this, suffering was a great theme in Paul's letters to the early church. In fact, it's a theme that appears over 60 different times 
But if you look in Acts chapter 9, I have to turn to it myself here. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is when Ananias is being encouraged by the Lord to go to this Saul, which was Paul's uh, given name, who was the great persecutor of the church. He was to go and to help him in his affliction after the Damascus Road encounter with Jesus. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. See, we focus a lot on, on this wonderful Damascus call of Jesus to get Saul to become Paul and be the first one to take the good news message of salvation and forgiveness out to the non-Jewish people. What we sometimes fail to understand is, is the details of that calling. And right from the get-go, right, uh, right from the outset, the Lord says, I'm going to show him up front that this is going to involve a great deal of suffering. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I die every day. He so understood that suffering was a part of his following Christ in obedience that he literally saw every day as a death experience. Now, I don't know if that actually, you know, that was hyperbole, but it actually felt that way every day. But I'm thinking his attitude would be if at the end of one day, and he's saying his nightly prayers to the Lord, and he's reflecting on what happened that day. If he didn't suffer it all that day, he'd be going, God, well, what was up with today? I'm not supposed to be suffering every day. How come we didn't have any suffering today? I have the opposite experience, don't you? Right? I'm kind of reviewing my day. I'm like, what is up with this suffering today? This is not supposed to be hard. This is supposed to be easy. What's wrong with you, God? You're, you're failing me. Total different mindset. I think uh, we won't go into this, but I think a lot of that comes from our American culture of comfort and convenience. Right now, if you go to the airport, people are being a little testy again about standing in line, having to wait. We'll see how long this takes. What do you think was the greatest source of suffering for the Apostle Paul? I mean, if you're familiar with his life as an apostle, he had all kinds of hardships. But uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. I think you'd be surprised to see what really, what really uh, was the source of his uh, greatest suffering. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Besides everything else, Paul writes, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Okay? He's saying, my biggest pain source is my concern for all the people that have responded to the gospel message that I have preached and have been organized into churches by me. I'm concerned about their spiritual well-being. Now, you can understand, if, if you've made a choice and you're getting punished and persecuted for it, that's one thing. It's another thing when you feel responsible for other people now getting punished and persecuted. That's got to kind of weigh on you, right? But beyond that, he's also concerned just about their spiritual well-being and about how they're doing uh, organized as churches. Now, look, look up ahead uh, before that verse to see the other things that Paul was suffering from that he didn't think were as great a source of suffering as his anxiety for all the churches. Go back to verse um, 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. 
I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, the very people that he had been called to bring the gospel to, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. These are people that he had had around him that were partnering in the ministry, and they turned out to be false, uh, false brothers and followers of Christ. I, verse 27, I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Then you get to verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So he says, if there's one thing that, it, that occupies my heart and my mind every single day, it's my concern for the people of God. Do you ever pray for your uh, campus pastors? I see a couple nodding heads. Who? Why would they need our prayers? You know, part of the call to be a pastor is to love the people of God so much that you suffer for their well-being. Isn't that right? And so, to, to be a pastor of any number of the people of God is to take on this greater suffering because of your deep, deep love for them. Okay? And that's not, a, that's not like taking credit for something. It goes with the job. And so I want to I really admonish you to remember to pray for not only your campus pastors, but hopefully if you're plugged into a local church to pray for your pastors and your church leaders because they have brought, willingly brought on more suffering and anxiety and stress and hardship into their lives because of their answering out of obedience the call of Christ and because of their deep, deep love for the people of God. Now, Paul believed that all of his suffering had a purpose. He believed that his suffering proved once and for all that he had heard correctly on the Damascus Road, that he wasn't psychotic, wasn't hearing voices, that, that the resurrected Jesus chose him to be the last one that he was going to appear to and called him to do this mission that was different than the rest of the church was doing. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 says, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Now, what does he mean by that? I think what Paul is saying here is, the reason why people are mad at me, the, people, the reason why they throw me in prison, is because I'm going out and doing something out of obedience that a whole bunch of other people don't want me to do. And I'm declaring the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I am laying forth the need for all sinners to come to forgiveness through this relationship with this man, the Son of God, who died on the cross and resurrected on the third day. There's some people, they don't want me to say that. But because I am saying that, and I'm going out and I'm converting people and I'm planting churches, because I'm actually doing the work of an apostle, that's why I'm suffering. This is not because I'm a numbskull, right? This isn't because I'm lazy and you know, irresponsible. This is because of the direct reaction to the work that I've been called to do. So if there's any doubt, and Paul had his doubters, everybody does, right? If there's any doubt that I was truly called by Jesus on the Damascus Road, one of the greatest proofs that I have is all the suffering that I have been uh, uh, subject to. And he goes on to say that one of the reasons why he's been subject to all this suffering is God is, is purifying his character. God is continuing to shape and mold him into more the likeness of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't have time to look at this, but if you want to uh, really study this, you look at the 2 Corinthians 12 chapter where he talks about the thorn in his flesh, right? And his point there is saying, 
It's so easy for me, for you, for any of us to go out in the name of Jesus and without realizing it, to be operating on our own resources. And to think that, you know, this is really, you know, this is really cool of me to be serving God. God is so lucky, right, to have Ben Patterson and Ken Fong and whatever else. Because, you know, man, we are so capable. And all it takes is to get out there in the thick of ministry with all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our skills, and to find out that none of that is enough. That's suffering, failure. One of the things that uh, Paul was known for is he boasted about his suffering. He bragged about his weaknesses. Let me tell you something. That doesn't come naturally to a lot of us because we're part of a culture that only wants to know accolades. Okay? Part of uh, being asked to speak at chapel is I had to send my, my little resume right, up, up to Ben. Okay? That's a very selective list. It only says good things I've done. Right? I mean, what if instead they said, actually, we want to see you boast about your weaknesses. You know, share, share about all the people that are mad at you. You know, share, share about all the places that you've terribly failed because that's what's going to qualify you to be the chapel speaker at Westmont College. We don't think that way. When I first started dating the woman who later became my wife, we were, we were, I get into these crazy conversations with first dates, right? So there we are, you know, on this first date, and I'm busy bragging to her, telling her about all my accomplishments, all the people I know and great things I've done, and she's just looking at me. And guys, you know what this is like when you're on a date and you know you are dying, okay? It's like, shut up. Don't, don't say anymore, but your mouth keeps going, right? Because you don't know any other way. You're just, okay, okay. And, you know, I'm just looking at this face. It's just like, keep talking, and then date's over, right? So finally she interrupted me, and she said, is there a reason why you spent the last 20 minutes bragging to me? I can really pick dates, can't I? Okay. And uh, I said, uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, I'm not sure I know what you mean. You know? And she says, no, I mean, is, do you think that I need to be impressed by you? Is that, is that why you just kind of told me all these things? Because I'll just tell you right now, you can stop. Because I don't need to know those things. She says, I, wanna, I don't want to know what you've accomplished. I want to know who you are. And that, to me, isn't the, the same thing. So she says, like, for instance, have you ever made a mistake? Yeah, this date, I tell you right now. <laughs> yeah. Let's go home. Take me now, Jesus. You know, it, it, let's get out of here. Right? She says, have you, have you ever failed? She says, because... You know, I'm getting the feeling that you're afraid of failure. That's like, wow. And it was one of those moments, a really defining moment in my life where I thought, you know, I can pick up and run from this woman because there's plenty of other women out there that just want me to brag and be impressed. But there's something about what she wants to know that I feel is, is in line with what God wants me to know myself. And I need to connect with that. And so I began to talk about those things. My ultimate re revenge is I married her. You see, <laughs> now her lips are now her lips are sealed. She can't testify against me in court. You know what I'm talking about? We are we are not like Paul. We are so into bragging about our strengths, not boasting about our weaknesses. Why would Paul do that? Paul did that because he said, number one, it gives God all the glory, not me. And I need to know that more than anybody else. I need to know that the only way we're going to make this 
is through my utter dependency on the strength of God, not on my strength. The second reason is because being willing to suffer and die for what we believe is the greatest argument that what we believe is true. How many of you were at Urbana 2000? Let me just see a show of hands. Uh, at, at every Urbana conference, which happens every three years, they have one speaker who is assigned to be the apologist. Now, do you know what an apologist is? It's not someone who gets up there and apologizes for all the terrible things that Christians have done, although someone needs to do that sometimes. Okay? An apologist is someone who goes up there and makes a rational case, a rational argument for why what we say is true is true and what they say is true is wrong. And in previous Urbanas, as I've sat out there, I've heard some of the apologists make these great, rational, philosophical-sounding arguments, and I've seen the students come out of there all pumped up and triumphant, going, yeah, we're right, they're stupid, right? And I'm thinking, oh, man, this, this is the wrong way to talk to the students about where we're coming from. So I was very, very interested a year before Urbana when we had a speaker's retreat, and we brought in the new apologist, and he was a man from Sri Lanka, a brilliant man, formerly a nuclear scientist, okay? And, and now he's, he's running the whole uh, student uh, mission in South Asia. And he comes in there and he says, to me, the greatest apology for what we believe is our willingness to suffer and die for it. Not rational sounding arguments, you know, like what I was into when, when I was in college. Evidence that demands a verdict, right? And I would go out there and I would demand a verdict and I wouldn't always get the verdict I demanded. And I'm realizing that there is something deeper and more, and more important. And this man started talking about this. He says, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's our willingness to follow in the same footsteps, as hard as that might be. That's what's causing people in Paul's day to say, well, I, you know, I, I question him, but I don't question his convictions. Because he's willing to suffer and die for what he's believed. I think September 11th, as horrible as that was, has raised that whole question in a lot of our minds, saying, what mindset did these what we call fanatics have, in order to suffer all those years in hiding and then to give up their life for what they believe. That is so foreign for many of us. In fact, it just seems bizarre. And yet, something similar, without the evil intention, is being talked about right here. Um, this apologist began then to talk about this one example. He said there was American missionaries who were in northern India for 20 years ministering to lepers. And India still has a caste system. It's unofficial, but it's still very real. And these lepers, no matter what caste they were born into, once you have leprosy, you're just cast all into the uttermost regions. And they were bringing the, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ, not just the gospel, but the presence of Jesus into their midst. But for 20 years, they had probably only enough converts to fit on one hand. A couple of years ago, fanatical Hindus surrounded the family car. The father was in the car, and the two children. The mother was someplace else. They set the car on fire and they burned them to death. This made headlines even in the United States. What made greater headlines was the wife's response to the reporters after this atrocious incident. She said, am I sad? Of course I'm sad. Who wouldn't be sad? I, I miss terribly my husband and my children. I would not want to lose anybody this, this soon in this way. But she says, Christ's love compels me to forgive the people who've done this. And I'm going to continue to stay in northern India and continue the work. Kind of reminds you of the Elizabeth Elliot sort of, sort of story, right? And she stayed on. And this made headlines for weeks afterwards because this, they, they didn't know how to compute this. 
the, the intellectual uh, Hindus were saying, we have national shame as the intellectual Hindus now because these people aren't even Indian, and yet for the last 20 years, they've been giving their lives for our own people who are lepers. Shame on us. In spite of all of our great philosophy and education and intellect, it hasn't led us to lay down our life for the very people that are own flesh and blood. And on top of this, how in the world can she stay and forgive the people who've taken away her loved ones? More people converted subsequent to that atrocious event than ever before in the 20 years. Now, don't try to play cause and effect. It's just a response. And this is what Paul was talking about, you see, when he says, my suffering is not only greater proof of my being truly called as an apostle, my suffering is the greatest apologetic that I have that what I believe is true. Maybe you still doubt that it's true, but you don't doubt that I believe it's true. Why? Because I'm willing to keep believing this even if life gets hard. You and I, for the time being, may not have to experience persecution for being Christians. And Paul is not saying that we should seek persecution. But what he is saying is, do we have enough commitment to who Jesus Christ is and following him in obedience that if part of following him requires being willing to risk our lives and to suffer discomfort, are we willing to do that? Let me read to you what's going on right now in Pakistan. We've been talking a lot about Afghanistan and Pakistan with Christians, our brothers and sisters. There are widespread attacks on Christians in Pakistan. This has been especially escalated in the last few days since bin Laden labeled America's activities in Afghanistan as being aggression of the followers of the cross against followers of Islam. There was widespread kidnapping and raping of poor Christian women. Quote, you are killing our children and raping us in the name of Christ, said an embittered Muslim young man just before taking his vengeance out on a local Christian woman. One such rapist told his victim, quote, the baby you're going to have is Jesus. For that is what Jesus Christ was, an illegitimate child. Your Christian brothers have killed millions of our Muslim brothers to promote Christianity. Here I am giving you the baby Christ, unquote. According to highly authoritative sources, many other places have seen a rise in the slavery of Christian women and children, particularly in the rural areas. Often Christian men are castrated, while the women and children of his family are taken away as captives. Reliable Christian sources report that in many such camps for kidnapped Christians, nursing mothers have their breasts sliced off to prevent them from feeding their babies. It is reported that the Christians are even being forced to consume human feces and urine as the body and blood of Christ. You know, we just go about our daily business blissfully ignorant of the cost that many of our brothers and sisters, 200 million of them right now, are paying to continue following Jesus Christ. Now, I gotta believe that uh, in those parts of the world where this is happening, they don't need to have a persecuted Christian Sunday. That's every day. They don't need to be reminded of how much suffering and hardship can come from following Jesus Christ, but they have something that we don't have. Not just the persecution, what they have is a test of their true commitment. Because when you are really challenged with suffering and death and hardship because of your following of Jesus Christ, it really makes you ask, is this really worth it? Now, I'm not saying right now, let's all go run out and stand in the street and get hit by cars. That's not even persecution. But I think there's two things we can do. One of them we're going to do before we leave this room, and that is 
to suffer when part of the body suffers. We're going to pray for them. The other thing that I want to invite you to, to consider doing this week is to choose to do one hard thing because of your faith in Christ. Don't always choose the easy way. Don't always go with what is comfortable or fun. In, in the spirit of our brothers and sisters who don't even have that choice, I think the least we can do in the name of the same Jesus is to say, I will risk something in order to demonstrate my conviction in Jesus Christ. I want you to now get with like two or three other people. We're only going to have about a minute or two to pray. But I want you, if you don't know each other, at least introduce yourself and go right to prayer. Pray for the 200 million brothers and sisters in the world right now who are suffering all kinds of atrocities because of their profound faith in Jesus Christ. Would you do that? And I'll lead you out. Go right to prayer. May they never stop. May we, may we fight against the human tendency to push this into the furthest recesses in our minds. Help us not to have our desire for comfort and convenience crowd out the call to the narrow road that leads to life everlasting. Father, we pray that all these prayers are received as blessings, as rays of hope, as issues of strength and courage to those who have chosen obedience and commitment and conviction. Lord, we are humbled by their example. And we are chastised for the things we complain about, for the things that we focus on, for our own self-absorption. Father, give us your heart for the world and all the people in it and especially for our brothers and sisters that we're going to share eternity with. Help us to feel their suffering and to suffer as well to the point of praying for them daily, to the point of being moved to action on their behalf, as well as to risk hardship and suffering ourselves in some tangible ways so that their suffering and deaths are not in vain. Father, even as the Apostle Paul experienced himself, it's when we choose to identify with those who suffer that we more closely identify with you and how you're willing to suffer and die, Lord Jesus. We take that gift of your suffering and your death and the newness of life so glibly. We confess that to you. It is the most precious thing we have. Help us to hold on to it and to live it out. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.